Okay, our topic for this evening is Agrippa I, the last king of, Jewish king of Judea. So, in order to understand the story of, uh, of Agrippa, we'll refer to Agrippa I as just simply Agrippa, or Herod Agrippa, we have to know how he relates not only to the rest of his family, the Herodian dynasty, but also to the Roman Empire. And this will bring into the discussion areas of Jewish life even beyond the land of Israel to include the Jews of Egypt. Okay. So Agrippa was the son of Aristobulus IV. Aristobulus IV was the son of Herod. Herod executed his own son in the year 7 before the Common Era, uh, because at that time Herod was a little crazy, and suspected that his Hasmonean boys uh, had malicious designs against him, so he had them killed, with the permission of Augustus. But even though he killed his child, he still had a soft spot in his heart for his grandchild. <coughs> so uh, Herod Agrippa and siblings were shipped off to Rome where they would be raised in the lap of luxury together with the children of the imperial family. So as a VIP, as a high-ranking individual from a vassal state, vassal kingdom, Agrippa (coughs) will grow up with um, the heirs of Augustus. He'll be friendly with Tiberius, who will be the next emperor, with Caligula, eventually, he'll be the next emperor, and also with Claudius, eventually, with the emperor after that. So he knows personally all the players who will rule Rome for the next uh, half century. In Rome, Agrippa was uh, a dilettante, spent a lot of money, other people's money, was indebted to... uh, high-ranking officials, and eventually you, can, you can't spend someone else's money forever before they expect some kind of repayment, which he could not do. So he runs away to Idumea, roughly around the year 23, we think. He runs away to the other side of the world, to Idumea, to escape the, uh, the wrath of his, um, his creditors. He doesn't stay there that long, because his uncle... Herod Antipas, who was the tetrarch of the Galilee, has Rachmanus on the poor boy and decides to give him a job as a market supervisor, an official position within Roman, low-level position in Roman governance of the city of Tiberias. But Agrippa is not all that competent and is a thorn in the side of his uncle. So eventually he has to run away. Where does he go? He goes to Antioch under the protection of the proconsul of uh, of Syria. There, again he causes trouble because his high living requires that he have a steady flow of income, a high level of income. The only way you can do that as being sort of a dilettante VIP is to peddle influence, to sell uh, the access that you have to high government officials for a price, for bribes. So he gets caught doing that. And he has to run away. So he tries to make it to the coast, to to Caesarea, to take a boat across the Mediterranean. He's arrested for money that he owes to the imperial coffers. He escapes imprisonment. He gets on a boat. Eventually he ends up in Naples, on the Italian peninsula. 
where he uh, gets back into the good graces of Tiberius around the year 36. At this time, Tiberius is a very old man. He dies at the age of 78 in the year 37, having been the emperor for, at that point, 23 years, which is a fairly long time, and by the standards of that era, a very old man. Who will replace him? Caligula. Caligula was not known in the, in the beginning of his reign as necessarily being a, an uber-crazy person. Uh, there are those academic theories that say that he actually went nuts during his tenure in office, which was a short one from 37 to 41. Um, but they were signs of his erratic behavior even before that. But having been a friend of Caligula's from childhood, so Herod Agrippa was in position to secure um, titles and money and allowances that would get him back on top of Judean life. Well, the first uh, title that he gets is that of king of Golanitis, which is the not-so-Jewish area of the old Herodian kingdom, which is to the north and to the east of the core of Eretz Yisrael. If you remember, in the, in the generation after Herod, there had been three heirs to the Herodian throne. Archelaus, who was in Judea, Samaria, Idumea, which is the, the heartland of the country, the more, the more prestigious part of the country. There was Herod Antipas, who was in Perea and, and Galilee. Okay, that was the uncle that they didn't get along with. And there was Philip. Philip was in the Goyesha section in, in basically northern Jordan, southern Syria. Well, Philip died in the year 33, and that kingdom had been vacant. So Caligula assigns his buddy Agrippa to that vacant kingdom. Last week we said, what happened to Herod Antipas? So he was married to Agrippa's sister, and Agrippa's sister was jealous that Agrippa, her brother, was given the title of king by Caligula. So what did she tell her husband to do? To petition the emperor for the title of king. But that means that he's a chazer. What happens when you're a chazer? You get kicked out. So he was sent packing to Gaul. What happened then? His territories were now assigned to Agrippa. So Agrippa is now king of the eastern provinces and the northern provinces, including the, the heavily Jewish district of Tiberias. So whereas just a few years earlier, he had been a low-level market supervisor in one city, now he's the king of the whole province. Okay, so Agrippa has, you know, things are looking up for him. And he's got a friend in the highest place. <coughs> but now we get to the complicated part. Flaccus was the uh, governor of Egypt. And Flaccus was not a friend of the Jews, by the way. He was not trusted by Caligula. So Caligula sent Agrippa in the year 38 on an unannounced trip to Egypt to see what's going on there and report back to him be not so much a spy as just an unannounced visit by a representative of the emperor. (coughs) Well, having gotten to uh, Alexandria, Agrippa was heralded as a savior, as as a heroic figure, as a king of the Jews by the local Jewish community. Now, he's not the king of Egypt. He's the king of sections of Eretz Yisrael, although not even Jerusalem at that point yet. But still, if you have a Jewish king who comes to a heavily Jewish city... There's going to be a hero's welcome and a ticker tape parade. Okay, well, in this moment, uh, Flaccus and the, the, the 
native Egyptian and uh, Hellenistic population of the city are disrespectful to Agrippa. They're guilty of an affront to a king. Laissez majesté, whatever it was. They did something as an affront to his honor. And realizing that the governor did nothing about it when the Greek, uh, the Hellenistic and, and indigenous Egyptian population were disrespectful to him, they asked to press the matter further. They said, hey, wait a second, how come the Jews don't put uh, uh, images of Caligula in their synagogues? After all, uh, uh, we're all under uh, coercive orders to place the image of the emperor in our houses of worship. So, you know, emperor worship is quasi-deity. So how come the Jews don't have to do it? <coughs> Knowing that if Flaccus is, is uh, told, uh, if this request is made of him, he's going to have to enforce it. And if he tries to enforce it, what are the Jews of Alexandria going to do? Rebel or risk martyrdom. Probably not risk martyrdom, but fight back. So this leads to a pogrom. A very bad one at that. A lot of Jews are uh, forced out of the four of the five districts of Alexandria and ghettoized. This is the first ever real Jewish ghetto in a diaspora where only one out of the five sections of the city now has any Jews in it. And the houses, the property in the other four districts were plundered, stolen by whoever wanted to grab a Jewish, a Jewish property. And the synagogues were, were, were looted <coughs> and destroyed. Okay, so this is very, very bad. There was an ongoing problem in Alexandria over whether or not Jews were citizens of the city. This goes back to the days of Alexander the Great, because when the city was first founded, it was established as a <coughs> as a foothold for Macedonian or, or Hellenistic uh, civilization um, as a way of dominating the indigenous population. But the Jews always served a useful purpose of being like the middlemen. Um, they were not Hellenistic and therefore not the elite, but they also were not the, 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 the lowest rung of society, who the, the barbarian native Egyptians. And the Jews always considered themselves more akin to the, the, Hel- the Hellenistic population, thus worthy of full citizenship and full rights, whereas the Hellenistic said, <coughs> no, you're like the barbarians, you have no rights. Back and forth. <coughs> but nobody likes the Jews. So this um, petition for citizenship never was fully resolved. Even in the end, a hundred years later, it wouldn't fully be resolved. The emperors took advantage of it um, to wield power. Since it, they had to be petitioned for a verdict, they controlled everyone's destiny, and they liked that kind of power. So in the year 38, you have this uh, pogrom that is only stopped last minute um, before there's a real serious genocide. And then in the year 40, it erupts again. And so representatives are sent by the Jewish community and by the Greek community to Caligula for adjudication, who was right, who was in the right and who was in the wrong in all this uh, machlokis. And Caligula <coughs> at first doesn't want to hear the case. Then finally he does hear the case and it's pretty obvious that he's not uh, inclined to rule in favor of the Jews. The representatives, the, the, the leaders of the delegation are very famous. The leader of the Jews was Philo of Alexandria, the famous philosopher. The leader of the, uh, the Greek delegation was Apian. From where do we know Apian? Against Apian. Contra Apianum. Uh, that is one of Josephus's major works. There's Wars of the Jews, Antiquities of the Jews, and Against Apian, uh, which was his, um, his work going against someone who was not his contemporary, someone who lived 50 years before him, but was the leading anti-Semite of the first century. 
the leading uh, in the world leading anti-Semite, but he was the, the head of the Hellenistic community of Alexandria. So, how does any of this matter, as far as we're concerned, in terms of the history of Eretz Israel? Because Agrippa, as a friend of Caligula, was able to use his influence to stop the pogroms, and it was thought. That, they, that the Jews of Alexandria could use the influence of Agrippa to have a favorable verdict in favor of the Jews against the Hellenists. But that didn't work out. In the end, Caligula is assassinated, so it doesn't matter what he thinks. The, it's going to be up to the next emperor, uh, Claudius, to decide the fate of the Jews of Alexandria. But the point is, there were pogroms in 38 and 40, and for a moment, all was in the hands of a lunatic. Okay. Yeah. But... Right before he was assassinated, yes. he wanted to put a statue into the base of Mishra. Correct, which is the next, the next point. So, oh, I thought you said he did. He's no, no, dead already. No, no, no. So <laughs> vis-a-vis Egyptian Jewry, the year 40 was the last of their troubles. But, exactly what you said, the idea proposed by the Hellenists in Alexandria to Flaccus of, of imposing a statue on the synagogues of Egypt, the Batek Neset, that put the idea into uh, the mind of Caligula, possibly, or his handlers, that, hey, let's put a statue in the ultimate Beit Knesset, the Beit HaMikdash of Jerusalem. So this uh, order is issued in the late, late in the year 40, and the governor of Syria, who at this time has authority over Judea, over Jerusalem, because the procurator in Jerusalem is like a nobody. The governor of Syria is really the, 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 the head honcho. This is a man by the name of Petronius. He understands if I try to put a statue in the temple, what are the Jews going to do? They're going to be an open revolt. Now what the Jews say, not so much as open revolt, but we will commit mass suicide or mass martyrdom. 6,000 Jews block the road from Caesarea saying you'll pass over our dead bodies to bring that statue to, to, to the Beit HaMikdash. So Agrippa is able <coughs> to uh, convince Caligula to um, cancel the order. But, having been alerted uh, by messenger that the Jews threatened mass martyrdom or suicide or whatever, or uh, they were obstinate, they were opposition, um, when he hears that from the messengers coming from Petronius... Caligula then decides, you know what? To hell with everyone. I'm going to put it in anyway. And Petronius is in a bind. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? If he refuses, um, he's he's dead. So, in the end, the ruling was, it doesn't have to happen, but you, Petronius, need to commit suicide. That was the official verdict. And Petronius would have committed suicide, but the word got to him just around the same time as the word also got to him that Caligula was dead, that he had been assassinated by the Praetorian Guard and has been succeeded by someone else. So everybody lives to tell the story <coughs> in that episode. But it, it shows you the, uh, the danger that the Jewish community could be in if you have an emperor who doesn't respect the... Um, the exceptions carved out into the law on behalf of Judaism. Remember, everybody else has to, has to observe the civic religion of Rome. All the other Eastern cults, which are polytheistic in nature, or heathen in nature, have to throw a, a, you know, a token uh, uh, katoris 
uh, for, the, for the emperor. The Jews are exempted because we are staunchly monotheistic and Hashem is a kel kana, a jealous God. And we're not allowed to have this symbolic uh, display of obeisance to another deity. But if you have an emperor <coughs> who wants to cancel that exception, we're in big trouble. How was that exception generated? Julius Caesar, the year 47. Yeah. He laid down, he laid down the law. Yeah. But there's another thing that's more important. Kugula was a god. There right. There's no question. He wasn't it, just an emperor. Right. He was a deity in and of himself. So if he's a god, he's above that. Right. Well, that's why he was the only one who insisted upon this, because it wasn't so much... Uh, because he could no longer be satisfied like the other leaders were with a korban made on his behalf to the Jewish deity. It had to be a korban made to him, because he is the deity. So th- that's a bit of a nuance, but uh, you can understand. There's a difference between someone davening on your behalf to Hashem versus davening to you. Clear difference. All right. <coughs> now, who's going to replace Caligula? Claudius. So, Claudius is a contender to the throne, but there are other options. In fact, one of the options is to abolish the, emper- the empire altogether and restore the Roman Republic. There were those in the Senate who wanted that, okay? Uh, but that, that wasn't to happen. The, the, the Roman Republic was never restored, not until uh, the Italians in the 19th century, okay? Um, Caligula is replaced by Claudius. Where does Agrippa fit into the scheme of things? It depends which source you look at. The various historical sources tell us that Agrippa was involved in the rise of Claudius to the throne. One version, Yeshomrim, that Claudius wasn't so sure he wanted the throne, and Agrippa like, nudged him to take it. And having, nu- having nudged the right candidate to take the throne, and he, this guy wins, C- Agrippa is now in position to be given more honorific titles and roles. Well, he already is a king. He already has the northern and eastern provinces that had been the Herodian, Empire, the Herodian uh, kingdom. So what's left to be given to him? Samaria, Judea, and Idumea. <coughs> the, the, the main body of Eretz Israel, And that's exactly what's given to him. He now is the king over almost the entirety of Eretz Israel and the entirety of the Jewish population of Eretz Israel, And he's a Jew. So that's a nice thing. A Jew is a king over Judea. Mazel Tov. Claudius is a Jew? Agrippa, Agrippa. When you say I do, you're talking about Edom. Yes, yeah. It's south of Judea. Nabatea is to the east. Idumia is directly to the south. Like Hebron, Beersheba, that's Idumia. It's not synonymous with the old Edom of the Bible. It's a little different. Uh, yes, it's on the other side. But this is Idumia, not Edom. Okay, so Agrippa is the king. Is he a good king or is he a bad king? What do, what do we know about him? Well, <coughs> if you ask the New Testament, if you ask a Christian who knows their Bible, they'll say that Herod Agrippa was a bad guy. Vicious, evil man like his grandfather. Why? Because he executed James and other of the early uh, apostolic figures. That was the brother of Jesus? Uh, the other James. James with a Z. Uh, with the Zebediah. I forget the other one. Not, not James the Just, who was the brother of Jesus. So, he executes a few leading Christian figures of the early church, and he's seen as a nasty <clears throat> character. But that should come as no surprise. Because 
what happened? Agrippa was a Herodian grandson who had ideas even in his youth about being a king, being the leader of a country, a head of state. And while he's out of the country, what happens? Some Chaim Yankel from the Galilee says he's the Messiah and gets killed for it. And then has a couple of Talmidim who make a new religion. Is this guy, the Herodian, who's of a legit, so-called legitimate uh, monarchical dynasty, who then actually does get a hold of the throne, is he going to look favorably upon someone who thought they were Melech Yisrael but turned out to be a false messiah? No. So he'll spit on them and, and execute his followers. So that's the, the natural hostility between uh, Agrippa and the church. So it explains why the New Testament is, uh, is hostile. Wasn't but, there talk that Agrippa was the Messiah? Of course, yeah. But, so how can he have a competitor? Well, the, the talk of Agrippa being the Mashiach is uh, probably what gets him assassinated because he views himself as more than just a vassal king of, of Claudius but as a savior of the Jews. Not in the, in, in, the, in, the, in the Jesus sense of a Messiah but sort of in the purely political sense. Um, but what about from a Jewish perspective? Do we like him? Do we not like him? Was he a religious Jew? That's the first question. Because Herod, the son of Antipater, part of a, a forcibly converted Idumian family, they were not good Jews. They were not Shomer Shabbos and Kashrus with the Chol of Yisrael. Uh, they, they were Chazer Fressers and, and murderers. But was Agrippa a good Jew in the technical religious sense of the word? answer is, as far as we know, yes. But only later in life. He was brought up in Rome... He spent a lot of years as a playboy running around town with the girls and with the gambling and was spending money like it was going out of style. Was he from then? Mistama not. Presumably not. But he has a religious awakening. A religious awakening right around the time that he becomes the king over a large Jewish population. Is this for political convenience, for expediency, or did he have some kind of a legitimate uh, awakening and uh, a pure, uh, a sincere turn of heart? We'll never know. We'll Balchuva. We'll never, never know. All we can know is what the sources say. We'll read them carefully, with an awareness that the sources are written many, many years after he was long dead, and that the rabbinic literature might have its own agenda. But let's read the sources. Okay, the first one. It's a Mishnah in Bikurim, chapter 3. And this refers to the, uh, the parade. The parade of all the Jewish communities, the farmers from the, the various regions of the land of Israel who come to the Beit HaMikdash on the, around the time of the holiday of Shavuos with their first fruits in the fancy de- decorated baskets and the music is playing and <coughs> people are lining the streets and welcoming the, uh, the newcomers. Who's participating in this parade? So the Mishnah says, So that the music is playing, until they get to the Temple Mount. They get to the Temple Mount. Even Agrippa the king will take a basket on his shoulder and march all the way to the courtyard. So here you have a piece of a Mishnah saying that a Herodian king was a religious enough Jew that he would enter into the throng of the crowd, the throng of people, like any other person. You know, p- marching in the Israeli Day Parade, like, you know, Governor Cuomo in the crowd. 
with a basket of fruit on his shoulder, and he's going all the way to the Temple Mount. What does that tell you? That he's a religious Jew, number one, and much to the delight of the, the rabbis who are recording this, he's not too haughty as to make himself above and aloof from the masses who are observing the rites of Judaism. He, he considers himself a Jew, like all the other Jews, that he will join the, uh, the Aliyah Laregel, like anybody else. But he could be a good politician. <coughs> okay. So, of course, you could say, this is just a show. Just like uh, when, uh, when Hillary Clinton walks in the parade uh, right, to, 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 to curry the Jewish favor, the Jewish vote, it's just a show. doesn't mean she loves the, the Jews. Okay? So, let's go to another, another source. This is a Tosefta and Psachin. Pamachat bikesha gripas hamelach hamelach leida kama minyanan shaluchlusin. Agrippa wanted to know how many people uh, are in the country. What's the population? Let's take a census of the country. Now, by the way, are you allowed to do this? No. No. So it's 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 against the tradition, the biblical and and and, and post biblical tradition, to conduct a direct census of the people of Israel. But rather, it has to be done in some indirect fashion. So whether it's the machatzir shekel, whether Saul did it with shards of pottery or he did it with lambs, uh, there's some indirect method of counting the number of of, of Jews. So what did uh, Agrippa do? He said, Amar lahem la kohanim. Leave behind uh, you know, a limb of, uh, of each of the Paschal offerings, um, a kidney of, of, of um, each Paschal offering. And what happened? There were 1.2 million uh, kidneys that were left behind after the, the, the Erev Pesach uh, festivities were over. And that's how you know how many Jews there are in Israel because there are 10 people who eat every Korban Pesach. So if there were, were 600,000 pairs, which is 1.2 million, equals 12 million people. Now, of course, this is an exaggerated number, and I don't care about the number. <coughs> what do I care about? The fact that he did it in a religiously acceptable way, which shows his deference to the tradition and to the halachic authorities. Okay? Now, there's also something else here that we'll get to eventually. And Why does he want to know how many people are in the country? Fight, exactly. So, so this, this is a quiet little uh, indicator that maybe he wasn't the most loyal vassal king. Maybe he has intentions of establishing an independent Judean kingdom with its own foreign policy. Alright, so uh, I shouldn't have mentioned that already. I should have saved it for the end, but I'm tipping you off that he has ideas, and even in the rabbinic literature we see a little little hint of this, maybe uh, looking forward towards an independent kingdom. Okay, another another source. This is Gemara Psachim. Are you allowed to eat an Erev Pesach? Can you eat an Erev Pesach? No. A little bit of yes, yes, maybe no. All right, so, Tainus uh, Bechorim, number one, fast of the firstborn, so maybe you shouldn't eat. But nobody observes that anyway. It's a bogus fast. Nobody does, does go to a seum. All right, but the, what is the halacha? Are you allowed to eat Erev Pesach? And the answer is in the morning, yes. But in the afternoon, you're not supposed to eat. The Mishnah says, And anybody who did high school Gemara knows that Mishnah. Alright, so from Erev Pesach, Mincha time and onward, you're not supposed to eat. 
Okay, well, <coughs> if you ate breakfast in the morning, then not eating lunch is not such a big deal. You wait till dinner. So what? But the Gemara says, Afilu agripas ha-melech shehu ragil le'echol b'teisha sha'ot, oto ayom lo yochal ha-chetechshach. Agrippa, who did not eat his big meal of the day until the ninth hour, because kings used to eat much later than the common man. The common man would eat his main meal the fourth or fifth hour of the day, you know, from, starting from sunrise, so the king would go the ninth hour. So Agrippa, even though he didn't eat his main meal yet, he was a pious Jew that he would not eat until dark because he was fulfilling the halachot concerning the Seder. Let's go to another source. This is Yoma Davchaf Medbez. Gavini Cruz Mahu Omer. Gavini was the was the the, the barker, the the, the 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 crier in the temple. And what did he say every morning? Imdu Kohanim Lavoratchem, Ulavim Duchanchem, Yisraelamadchem. Arise, O Kohanim, to your service, Leviim to your song, and the Israelites to your your stations, your Ma'amadot. Uh this was to wake people up at the the crack of dawn, the Krot Gever, um uh, for the service. He had a loud voice. It was like, can't the health God? A loud voice. All right? And you could hear three parsangs away. Pretty impressive. All right, most people don't have such a strong voice. Agrippa heard it from a distance of three parsangs. And when he got to the, to the temple area, he gave this fellow a gift. You know, he gave him a little uh, a token of appreciation for the fact that he's doing such a good work. You know, good work, young man. What does that tell you? That Agrippa was a nice fellow who, who, who appreciated the labor of the underlings, and he was respectful of the temple service. He recognized the importance of the temple service. So all these sources are, are seemingly favorable, favorable to Agrippa. He. Um, Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. Yeah, you're right. So, but the problem is, the problem is that we know Agrippa did certain things <coughs> in the areas that were not especially Jewish that would have offended Jewish sensibilities. So, in the northern regions and the eastern provinces, where it was majority Gentile. Some of the minted coins that were from his mint had human faces on it. You'd never find that in Judea Samaria, where the population is Jewish, but you did find it in the Gentile regions. Now, if he was such a pious Yid, then he wouldn't have minted human faces as a matter of 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 of, 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 of graven image of the second commandment anywhere in his domain. Are you allowed to do Avodah to, to to patronize Avodah Zarev just to curry favor with the Goyim? No. I don't know about that. Yehareg v'yal yavor. Okay, but but in addition to that, he sponsored he sponsored Olympics, and he paid for amphitheaters and theaters and stadiums, just like his grandfather had done, in regions beyond his kingdom. Now, why do this again? To be in good, the good graces of the emperor. It's always nice when your vassal king is paying for public works and, and entertainment all around the empire. But if he was a very pious Jew, he would never have done such things. So it leads you to believe that all of his piety 
at the local level was politically motivated. Maybe, maybe. Okay. <coughs> a coin has a relief. It, it, it's three-dimensional. It's not two-dimensional. So therefore, it, it falls into the category of Elohim HaSeicha Lo Tasulach, Pesel HaSeicha, yeah. Graven image. It's not a painting, yeah. Right. So maybe he didn't totally expunge from his personality this uh, other part of his life. Meaning you can take Rome out of the Jew, but you can't take the Jew out of Rome? (laughs) (laughs) The opposite, yeah. Okay, so let's now go to the most important source of them all, which will uh, be a conflicted source. So, this is a a Mishnah and Sota. HaMelech Omeid Umekabel. When you have the Hakel ceremony, which is once every seven years, in the Chol HaMoed Sukkot of the year after the sabbatical year, the king reads the Torah in the temple. And the king reads the Torah in a seated position in the temple courtyard. There was a procedure whereby all the high-ranking officials in, uh, uh, in ascend- ascending order, from the lower ranking to the higher ranking, will pass the Torah from one man to the other till it finally gets to the king, from the, the Chazana Knesset, the Rosh Knesset, the deputy Kohen Gadol, the Kohen Gadol, to the king. So the king receives the Torah, HaMelech Omeir, in a standing position, the king receives the Torah, Umekabel, the Korei Yoshev, and he, rec- he reads the Torah while seated, and only the king is allowed to sit in the Azara of the, of the Beit HaMikdash, and only a Davidic king, uh, no one else is ever allowed to sit down in the Azara. It's forbidden. You have to stand otherwise. He wasn't a Davidic king. So, we'll, so the Gemara will explain that they did this in the Ezrat Nashim, not in the Azara, because precisely for that reason, that he was not a Davidic king, so do it beyond the official courtyard, in the women's courtyard. Doesn't read the whole Torah. So some say it was the whole book of Devarim, but even that, probably not. It was probably just selections from the book of Devarim, the paragraph of the king, the paragraph of Anir Aramio Vedavi, certain key portions, maybe the Tochacha, uh, but not the whole thing. What happens? Agrippa Samelech Ahmad v'kibel v'kara omed. He read the Torah while standing. He didn't sit. V'shibchuhu chachamim. And the sages extolled him for having uh, respected the ceremony so much that he would give up his honor and not sit, but rather stand. Yeah. King didn't read the Torah other than for these occasions. Yeah. So this is this is the only time it would happen, and the kings were were, were typically going to sit, but he stood. That was the the the, the, the is that he stood. Now, then Kishihigia, when he arrived at the verse in Deuteronomy chapter seventeen, do not place over yourselves a foreign king. He cried because he was concerned that I am a foreigner or I'm going to be regarded as a foreigner by virtue of my Idumian ancestry. So, uh, and by the way, where, was he Idumian on both sides? Uh, what percentage of him was, was indigenously Jewish? So the answer is that he was the child of Aristobulus IV and Berenice. Berenice was the daughter of Salome, 
who was the sister of Herod. So on the Salome side, he was entirely Idumean, which means converted to Judaism, but not indigenously Jewish. And on the father's side, he was half Hasmonean, half Idumean. So he's three quarters Idumean and one quarter Hasmonean. Nowadays, uh, that doesn't get you buried in a Jewish cemetery, I don't think. Uh, maybe it gets you citizenship in Israel under the law of return, but that's about it. So he's worried, I'm going to be regarded as a foreigner, as a, as a fraud. So was it his mother who, uh, who danced the seven veils and, uh, and killed uh, John the Baptist? Because I thought it was... Uh, I thought it was was it was her mother? Salome. I thought it was Salome's daughter that did the dance, and then they gave the command to kill John. Uh, it's Berenice. Is it is the same. Is it the same Berenice? It had to be because the other one was 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 much later. Was it was a was the paramour of Titus? So yes, it's the same person. Where is this mentioned? It's in the Sechta's <coughs> Matthew. It's in the New Testament. Yeah. Okay. Therefore, it's Okay. So. What, so what, what happens when he cries? They say to him, Amrulo al titiare Agrippas, don't worry about it, Agrippa, achinu ata, achinu ata, achinu ata. You're our brother, you're our brother, you're our brother. Now, right away, you have to understand one thing. This may never have happened. Because it's rabbinic literature, written 150 years later, speaking about an event that purportedly happened in the year 41, maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. Sure, Agrippa was probably worried that he was not going to be accepted by the Jews as a legitimate Jewish king. And maybe if the, if the Hakel ceremony happened, maybe he really did cry or show some kind of emotion. But did they say, you're our brother, you're our brother? I don't know. All I know is that rabbinic literature is claiming this. So it very well could be that this, this occurred and that the people did accept him. If they accepted him, why would they have accepted him? Because they recognized that unlike his, uh, his grandfather or his various uncles or his cousins, that he was roughly speaking a mention in a good Jew. So he, if, if, if he respects our faith, we'll respect his authority. That may, be, that, that may have been the deal. Which is most probably what he was looking for, but he, had, he was more astute in getting it in a nicer way. Right, okay. So, the problem, of course, is that he, he, he gave away, he forgave his honor. Is a king allowed to do that? So, a person is allowed to be mochel uh, al-kavodo, to renounce one's honor. You're allowed to do that whenever you want. Even a Rebbe in front of a Talmud is allowed to be mochel al-kavodo. Um, by the way, we're coming up to that time of year. What's the classic halachic example of a Rebbe being mochel al-kavodo? At a Seder? Leaning, correct. If the Rebbe doesn't allow the student to lean, the student isn't supposed to lean. But if he's mochel on the kavod, he declines it, then the kid is allowed to lean. Alright, so that's a Rebbe. But a king, melech shemachal kavodo, ain kavodo machul. He's, he's not allowed to. He's, the honor cannot be forgiven because the. When was he a king? He was a vassal. Uh, we're talking about he that he stood up. He should have sat down. No, that's No, but 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 the point is, God God is in heaven and we're down here on earth, and down here on earth there's the king and there's everybody else, 
And everybody else is supposed to be in a very low madrega, and the king is supposed to be in a very high madrega. So he stood up, and, and maybe that's not good. So what does the Gemara say? The Gemara says, Mitzvah Shani. For the sake of a religious commandment, things are different. So, of course, this, so the Gemara has a way of justifying the behavior of the king whom they want to justify his behavior. So they ask the question, but they give an answer. Okay, so I'm glad you mentioned this, because I want to, I want to uh, explain that he was a king. All the rules in the halakha about a king, for the most part, are not based upon the law of Torah. The law of Torah has just a few details. You can't have a lot of wives, you can't have a lot of gold, you can't have a lot of horses, let's go back to Egypt. Those are the three rules, and you have to read a Torah. Okay, but there are, there are a, a dozen other, or two dozen other halachot on the books about a king that are secular in nature, that are not based upon the text of Torah. Where do these rules come from? They come from the proto-rabbinic era. Well, was there Davidic kings, so-called real kings, in the proto-rabbinic era? No. But there were Hasmonean kings and Herodian kings. Therefore, I submit to you right now that Melech in the Halakha equals Hasmonean and Herodian kings. These are real kings in the eyes of the law. Talk to Isaac Herzog, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, <coughs> so... That's one example where he forgave his, his honor and the rabbis will come to uh, find some justification for it despite its dubious uh, uh, character. But we're now, taking this as it happened, though. Yes, <laughs> we're going we're to assume that it happened and, and even if it didn't happen, it's a, projection, a retrojection from the rabbinic era about what they thought would have happened. So, there's another example of this. It's a Gemara Subas. Amru al Agrippas, they said about Agrippa, he was passing a, a bridal uh, uh, group. Uh, the Kala is going on her way to the Chuppah. And he stopped and gave her the right of way. Now, who has the right of way? The postal service always has the right of way. But the king versus some commoner. All right, the the, uh, the entourage of the king is going to go through, and the, the commoner is going to have to wait his turn. But what did he do? He allowed the kala to go first. Is that, 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 that's, that's very nice of him. Uh, so he's entitled to be a man. All right, let's see. So they asked the question, How could he do this? Answer is, Pashat drachim havai. He was at a crossroads, and at a crossroads there are no rules. There's a thing in the Talmud that, that, that at, 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 if, you, if you get to an intersection simultaneously, there are no rules. It's called Alim Gavar. Whoever wants to go first can just grab the, the, the right of way and go first. So since the, uh, the king didn't really have priority at that point, it was his prerogative to say, if she wants to go first, she can. Now, what does this tell us? This story may never have happened. <coughs> but if it did happen, it says that in the eyes of the rabbis, Agrippa... Um, was a king who was not overbearing. He had his moments where he recognized that it was a good idea to give, to throw a bone to the Hamonam, to the citizenry. It's politically savvy. People will like you if you do these sorts of things. Is it religiously appropriate? Maybe it isn't. 
But the rabbis are willing to find some kind of justification for it. Parshas Durachim or Mitzvah Shani, there's always an excuse for why he was allowed to be Mochal Kavodo, even though it's against the halacha. Okay. So that, it, seems yeah. to be, it seems to be a double-edged sword here. Yes. He's taken to task for having coinage up north with, with human figures. Yes. But he decides to stand, but that's okay. Right. Yeah, that's... that's it goes to show you a, a mixed approach towards Agrippa. The, that he's not uniformly loved, not, not in, in real time, nor even in the literature, but there's this strand that wants to love him, that wants to say he's such a wonderful man. He was pretty, pretty good. Okay. All right. Now, let's go to the criticisms, the criticisms of uh, Agrippa and of the people. So the, the, the Tosefta says, Mishem Rabbi Natan Amru, Nitchaivu Yisrael Klaya, Shechinfula Agrippa Samelech. That the people of Israel were deserving of destruction for the, for the sin of, of uh, flattery. That they were guilty of flattering Agrippa by telling him, You're our brother, you're our brother. When in fact, what? He wasn't their brother. That they should have insisted upon the enthronement of a native son of Israel, a true Jew by ethnicity, and not this uh, three-quarters uh, uh, um, Idumian character. But it wouldn't have happened. Okay. You know? so, so it wouldn't have happened, you're right. But they, they didn't need to say, that they went overboard in professing their love for him and their fraternity with him when they could have just kept quiet. So if you say he's the last king, so because of that, there was no more king. So, the, so they'll say is that it was all downhill after this, that the procurators from 44 to 66 were hell, which led to the war, which led to the destruction. That's exactly what they will say. Okay. Was there any conversion to the law here? You know, he was religiously a Jew. There's no doubt about it. He was born a Jew. He was born of Jewish parents. But, but But he was ethnically other. Okay, so so the rules of conversion are still very much in flux because we know that even in the days of Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yeshua, something we spoke about a couple of years ago, they were still debating what are the, the ceremonial components of Gerus. But let's assume for the moment that everybody agreed that he was technically a Jew. <coughs> still, um, there are areas of the law where it's not enough to be technically a Jew. You have to have some kind of yichus. Uh, and just as in the American Constitution, you know, Ted Cruz born in Canada, maybe he's out, or John McCain born in Panama, he's out, or whatever it is, Barry Goldwater born in Arizona before it was a state, he's out, you know, good. Uh, so the, the, the Idumians, although they're Jewish, they're citizens, they're not ethnically Jewish, and thus they are Nahri from the standpoint of Deuteronomy chapter 17. All right, that's uh, the argument that could be made. Let's go to uh, the Gemara and Sota which uh, extra, uh, uh, expounds upon this idea of the, the Jews were deserving of punishment for having flattered Agrippa. Amar Rabbi Shimon ben Chalafta, Miyom she'gavar agrofa shel chanufa, when the fist of flattery uh, ex- extended itself in Israel, nit'avtu hadinim v'nit'kalkalu ha'ma'asim, the uh, judgment was perverted, and the deeds of the public were... Um, 
spoiled. No one could say I'm better than you are. You know, I'm, I'm a tzaddik and you're not, because nobody was a tzaddik at this point. That society uh, was in steep decline from this point until the war. The, the Gemara, in, in a variety of ways, of flowery ways, makes that point. Okay. Let's uh, just go one more source about Agrippa and, um, and the rabbis, or Agrippa and the halacha. Sha'ala, this is a Gemara in Sukkah, Sukkah 27a. Sha'ala apotropos shal Agrippa samelach as Rabbi Elezer. So the... Um, uh, the apotropos is like the, the administrator of the estate of Agrippa the king asked Rabbi Eliezer the following question I uh, am typically only eating one meal a day so what is my halachic requirement of, uh, about eating meals in the sukkah because if, what's, the, what's the obligation to eat meals in the sukkah how many meals so our halacha is just the first day, first night, Tesvav, Tesvav, Chagamatzos, the Gezei Roshava, you have to eat matzah the first night of Pesach, you have to eat in the sukkah the first night of Sukkot, and after that, even if it rains, and after that it's all sort of optional. Rabbi Eliezer held you have to have two meals in the sukkah every day, 14 meals total over a seven-day period. Why? Because the average person eats two meals a day. Teshvu kein taduru, you have to live in the sukkah like you would live in your house, two meals a day, 14 meals total. So this guy says, I only eat one meal a day. Is it enough for me to eat seven meals in the sukkah, not 14? And what does Rabbi Lezer respond? He says, yeah, well, you have one full meal, but you also have a lot of snacks along the way, parparaot. So if you're going to have parparaot to satisfy your hunger, then you should eat another meal to satisfy God. So you have to have 14 meals in the sukkah. Then he asks, well, I have uh, uh, two wives, one in T- T- Tiberias and one in Sipori. So, uh, and I have two sukkahs, one in Tiberias and one in Sipori. So am I allowed to go from one sukkah to another, or do I have to spend the whole sukkahs in one sukkah? Um, and it doesn't matter what the answer is. The, the point is, he's asking important halakha questions. This is the executor of Agrippus, uh, or the administrator of his estates. This is not Agrippa I. How do we know this is not Agrippa I? Because Rabbi Eliezer is not Rabbi Eliezer in the days of Agrippa I. He probably wasn't even born yet. Because at the days of the destruction of the temple in the year 70, Yochanan ben Zakkai had two young disciples, Yoshua and Eliezer. How old were they? 20, 25? That means that Eliezer was born in the late 40s, early 50s. Agrippa I was dead in the year 44. So who was this? Agrippa II, the son of Agrippa I. Um, so, um, he was a king, but not in Judea. He was a king up north. He's the last Herodian king. We'll discuss him, not next week, but in subsequent weeks. He doesn't play much of an important role, uh, but it goes to show you that he was a religious Jew to, a, to an extent. The Galilee and regions beyond the Galilee. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because remember, the Herodians were not at odds with the Romans. The, the Romans were fighting the, the Jewish rebels, the zealots, and, uh, and, and the, the moderates in Jerusalem, but not the Herodians. Yeah, okay. So, one last source about Agrippa, which will tell us everything we need to know about how the rabbis viewed him. This is a vehicle rabbi, it's a medrash. Agrippa wanted to um, offer a thousand bird offerings uh, one day in the Beit HaMikdash. And he said to the Kohen Gadol, Today, I have exclusive dibs on the Mizbeach. Nobody can offer anything except me. All right, I, want complete, I, want to, I want to rent out the Mizbeach for the day, private party, a thousand bird offerings. 
All right. What happened? Some poor guy shows up with two uh, doves in his hand and says to the Kohen, you got to sacrifice these doves for me. The king tells him, but I can't because the king already rented out the Mizbech for the day. So the, fellow, the poor man says to the Kohen Gadol, but you know, listen, I, uh, there are four, I, I, I trap four birds every day. Two I offered to God as a sacrifice, and two I used to keep for myself to have Parnassah. And if, if I don't offer the sacrifice of the two, God won't let me keep the other two for the Parnassah. Meaning, uh, it's a good deal I have with Hashem. I get 50% and he gets 50%. And if I don't offer the sacrifice, I'm going to lose out. I'll, I'll go hungry. I'll starve. That's my deal with God. So what does the, the Kohen Gadol do? He offers the, the birds as a sacrifice for the poor man. Agrippa has a dream in which he, he's told that the sacrifice of an Ani, of a poor man, was, was done before your sacrifice. So he wakes up from the dream, a chutzpah of the Kohen Gadol, to break the deal. I saw the I said to him, I have exclusive rights over the Mizbech today. So he goes to the high priest and demands an explanation. And the, the Kohen Gadol gives him the explanation about the poor man. This, I had Rachmanus on him, blah, blah, blah. And in the end, what does Agrippa say? Yafe asita komashe asita. What does that mean? You did, you, did, you did the right thing. It was nice what you did. What does that tell you about Agrippa? In the eyes of rabbinic literature... That he he was a king, he was this you know a flashy, uh, you know rich extravagant king, who took his uh, youthful extravagance where he wasted money on girls and drugs and booze and whatever it is, and channeled it what into the service of Hashem, a thousand sacrifices, which is way too much, but right, uh, for the sake of Hashem, but in his later years he became a mensch and realized you have to do what's right, you have to do what's decent, and you have to help the little guy. So I think this paragraph in the Midrash really encapsulates the way we think of Agrippa, at least according to the rabbinic literature. He evolved over time, never fully lost the flashiness of his youth, but he was a decent fellow at the end who was a servant of Hashem uh, as a good Jew. Okay, now how did he die? So there are two versions of the story of how he died, but they're basically the same story. He was at Caesarea, uh, not a Jewish part of the country, and this, it was the seat of Roman governance um, throughout almost the entirety of Roman rule over Eretz Israel. And this was in the year 44, after he had been king of Judea for three years and king more broadly for seven years. And <coughs> someone makes an announcement as he's giving the, 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 the speech. I no longer hear the words of a man, I hear the words of a God. Now that's blasphemy, to refer to a human being as God. I mean, it's typical in, in, in Roman culture for someone, for a high-ranking official to, to deify themselves or to be deified by the others, but in a Jewish context, that's uh, apicursus, it's uh, scandalous. Now, you could argue that the literature reco- recalls how someone from the crowd said that but you could claim, really, he was thinking it about himself, and that he had uh, uh, delusions of, um, of, of of rising to a godlike status, or at least rising to the status of an independent king who no longer needed Roman protection or Roman overlordship. That's very reasonable, uh, a reasonable assessment of, the, of, of what happened. But uh, what happened next? So, either... He started having stomach pains and died five days later. Or 
the story with the bird. The bird landed on his head, and he had a, he knew from a, from an earlier dream that that was a symbol of, of of very near or immediate death, and he had a stroke and died. Um, so it's unclear whether it was a stomach ailment or a stroke. What do what do these the scholars think? A lot of them assume that Claudius had him assassinated through poison, and that it was a stomach ailment because he was poisoned, and that he was assassinated because he was getting too independently minded, uh, and that could, that could not be tolerated. Now, one of the other pieces of evidence to suggest that this was an assassination by poisoning because of an independent-minded king is that Agrippa tried to rebuild the fortifications of Jerusalem, most notably the northern wall, we call the north wall. There is uh, elements of it, uh, uh, you know, that are visible today that archaeologists have uncovered. Well, why would he build up the fortifications of Jerusalem? Only if he expected it to be attacked by an outside force. But who's attacking Jerusalem if it's part of the Roman Empire or a vassal state in the Roman Empire? Nobody, unless it breaks free in revolt and then is attacked by Rome by the Roman Legion. That's the only reason why it would need extra uh, physical defenses. So you could, you could uh, read uh, between the lines what's going on here. The other thing is, Agrippa convened a convention of all the local vassal kings, six, five, five plus himself, so there were six vassal kings of the region who were all um, on paper devoted to uh, Roman rule, but each one of whom probably had some thoughts about breaking free and a measure of autonomy independence. And here, Agrippa is like the ringleader, the rabble-rouser causing trouble, who's going to make the whole eastern wing of the empire, all the provinces of the east, uh, possibly an open revolt. So what, is, what, what choice does Claudius have, or you know, the, 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 the governor of Syria operating on behalf of Claudius, but bump the guy off? And having, having been eliminated, so who replaces him? Well, his son is too young. His son, Herod II, Agrippa II, is only 17 years old, 17, 18 years old. He's too young to exercise any serious authority. He later will be given a kingdom, but not Judea. So it is decided by the highest authorities of Rome to bring back the procurators. This makes perfect sense if you thought the Herodian dynasty was getting a little bit too uppity and was thinking about breaking free, how do you solve that problem? You just put the, the boot right back down on the neck of the Jews. Put a, a, a Roman official beholden to, exclusive, directly to the emperor, sitting in Jerusalem, bossing everybody around. And that's what's going to happen for the next 22 years. So we stop here, and next time we'll talk more about uh, the, uh, the rebel side of things, the, the right-wing Jews.